Well, this coming week is a sad one for me. Most of the leaves will come down and I will be recruited to rake leaves. And some of you will join me in that at your place of residence. This past week is also a sad week for me for it's the last week I think that I get the opportunity to mow the lawn. And for many of you, of you that's only punishment. For, for me, it's liberation. It's one of the few things that I get to do for six or seven or eight months where I get to see a completed project. I finished something. Mowing for me is a therapeutic exercise and it's one of the places in which any OCD nature I have comes out. My wife has often encouraged me to teach the boys to mow and indeed I've tried, but, but my particularities sometimes get the best of me. Do you know why? Because I'm a believer in straight lines when you mow. And I was told, whether it's true or not, don't tell me if it's not, that it's good for grass if you mow those lines in different directions depending upon the week. But the one thing you need to do when you mow, when you cut that first line through the grass, is to fix your eyes on a target. If you just follow what looks like the right path, you'll do zigzag and look like a drunk man behind a mower. But if you fix your eyes on what's in front of you and you mow in that direction and then follow that each time, you'll end up with what hopefully is a nice looking lawn. That's a trivial example of why it matters to fix your eyes going forward. A million times more important is how we live life, that we fix our eyes on what is most important and we live according to that pattern. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3, where we're going to hear Paul address the topic of fixing our eyes on the prize. Philippians chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. One of our hosts will give you one. I hope that you make a practice of bringing a Bible if grace is your church home. Philippians chapter 3, about page 952 in those Bibles or in your own Bible, you can find that. This is the third to last Sunday in our fall series called Transcendent Joy. We've journeyed through the bulk of Paul's letter to the Philippians, written to them, but for us and all who come after them with the scriptures. And again and again in these months together, we've been highlighting key themes in this letter. Themes like joy and unity and suffering and gratitude and above all, the gospel. You see, because as we'll find out today, the gospel not only saves, but the gospel transforms. The gospel not only rescues people, but the gospel forms communities. And those communities, especially this one in Philippi, Paul writes the following. Philippians chapter 1, verse 4, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Friends, God is in the business of calling out a people for himself and calling them into local communities of people to know and follow his son, Jesus Christ. We call them local churches. But he does this by saving individuals. He takes people who are lost in their own ways, who have a status as sinners, who are valuable and loved by God, and he rescues them from the condemnation they deserve and the punishment that awaits them. He does this by offering his son, Jesus Christ, to be their substitute, our substitute, your substitute, my substitute on the cross in payment for our sins. 
so that we might receive the righteousness of Christ. And along with that righteousness, as we found out in the letter to the Philippians, comes a new heart, comes forgiveness of sin, comes eternal life, comes the gift of the Holy Spirit. When God gives, he gives lavishly. And he does all the heavy lifting in salvation. Here's what God asks of any of us. He asks us to repent of our own dead in ways, leading to nowhere, leading to destruction, and to trust in him by faith, Jesus Christ and the work he's done on our behalf. And when that happens, the wonderful work of transformation begins to take place in the life of an individual. And Paul in the New Testament is exhibit A of that. We hear about his story, we hear about his heart, we hear about his change. Many of you are familiar with the story of Paul as it's told in the New Testament, predominantly in Acts chapter 9, where we read just what happens to Paul on the road to Damascus. You might remember Paul is on his way to persecute followers of the way and to finally snuff out this rogue movement of the rabbi named Jesus. But that very Jesus is more than Paul realized. For that Jesus, who's actually God himself and the Lord of life, stops Paul in his tracks on the road to Damascus. And he temporarily blinds Paul and he shows Paul what's actually true about himself, about Paul, about life. He reorients Paul's thinking and he then leads Paul into a very different perspective on the world, on his purpose in life, on who he is. And from then on, we see the example of the Apostle Paul with a new heart, with new eyes, with a new destiny as he lives. And Philippians chapter 3 provides the detail there. It, it tells us Paul's perspective on what's changed, on how Paul sees his own life, his new status. In many ways, all of chapter 3 is a harmonious whole. And last week, we looked at the first uh, 11 verses or so, I'd like to begin today by backing up to verse 7 and then reading to the end of the chapter, uh, most of which will be on the screen. I'm going to invite you to stand as we often do here at Grace as we read the scriptures. Again, I'm going to begin reading in Philippians chapter 3 verse 7 and reading then to the end of the chapter. Read with me. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then, verse 15, who are mature should take a view of such things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, 
And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Thanks. You may have a seat. Thank you for honoring the scriptures in that way. Beginning in verse 12 and the rest of the chapter, we can divide that up into either two sections or four paragraphs. I've elected, as you see in your worship program, to choose two sections. You can follow along there or follow along at gracepolaris.org program and take some notes on what we read from Paul from God today. And the first point that you see there is that believers pursue Christ-likeness, neither having arrived nor accepting mediocrity. Believers pursue Christ-likeness, neither having arrived nor accepting mediocrity. Twice in those first three verses, Paul makes his main point clear. I press on. And the reason is simple. Uh, Three times he says something to the effect of, I haven't arrived yet. I've not obtained all that it means to be conformed to Christ, to know him fully. I've not yet arrived at the goal. I've not yet taken hold of the prize. Paul makes it unmistakable. I have not arrived. Now, in truth, if we look back a few verses, Paul already has the righteousness of Christ. But he's not yet been completely transformed into the character of of Christ. He's in process. Just because he's in with Christ doesn't mean he's arrived in Christ. See, the Christian life, and this is important for us to grasp, involves a process, a transformation, a pursuit in the metaphor that Paul uses here, a race. And we need to note or ask ourselves the question, if Paul hasn't arrived yet, in what world do we think that we have arrived already? It's like the runner who gets into a marathon and runs eight or ten miles and then decides that the rest of the race is unimportant. They can go mingle with the crowd. They can go get some chips and ice cream. They can go bask in the beautiful weather of the marathon day. Because after all, they say to themselves, I'm a participant, right? I've competed in the race. To which the rest of us would look on and say, hardly. You've missed the point. The the point is to complete the race, to win running half the race and then sitting on the sidelines to watch others is simply not an option. It was the first weekend of February 2017. Our family, a number of weeks beforehand, had made plans to go down to Great Wolf Lodge located near Kings Island, not far from Cincinnati. And on that particular Sunday, it was Super Bowl 51 between the Atlanta Falcons and the New England Patriots. We checked into our room there at the Great Wolf Lodge. We watched some pregame banter 
And then we went down to the water park and enjoyed some of that. We came back, ordered some pizza, and were in our room. We didn't particularly have a team that we cared all that much about, but we turned the TV back on, and the score nearing halftime was 21 to 3 Atlanta. We ignored Lady Gaga at halftime, which is always a good idea, and then we were stunned to see the Atlanta Falcons up 28 to 3 toward the end of the third quarter. And was unthinkable, especially because the Patriots were the best team in all the league in the regular season. And they had, as they had for many years, that dynamic duo of Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. No one could beat them, people thought, even if they wanted that to happen. But the Falcons were embarrassing them on the biggest stage of football. What's the problem? Well, the game doesn't end at halftime. The game doesn't end even most of the way through the third quarter. Atlanta hadn't won. And they weren't there for participation awards or for mid-game leads. The Atlanta Falcons had come to win. And whether it was attitude or arrogance or apathy or just plain poor performance, the Atlanta Falcons would soon discover how tragic the rest of the game would go. As you can suspect, New England stormed back with 19 points in the fourth quarter alone, tied the game at the end of regulation in in overtime. The Patriots engineered a 75-yard, eight-play drive to win the Super Bowl in most unexpected fashion. And many people who've watched, I guess, all the Super Bowls regard this as perhaps the greatest Super Bowl ever played. There are many lessons. One of them is this. The game's not over till it's over. The same is true in the Christian life. Yes, we enter it on the finished work of Jesus Christ, and we live it in the grace and the power of Jesus Christ. But the Christian life still involves response and effort and perseverance, because without it, we run the race in vain. Kevin DeYoung says Christians rest in the gospel, but never rest in their battle against the flesh and the devil. Striving, fighting, working, these are good Bible words. Or as he says elsewhere, when it comes to growth in godliness, trusting does not put an end to trying. Paul knew that. And in his description of the Christian life, he he uses the analogy of running a race. Even though he knows Christ now, he writes, including the power of his resurrection, that knowledge doesn't mean that he's already completed his race or that he's arrived at the final goal. Paul knows that the future belongs to those who persevere. Paul says he devotes the same sort of intense energy, the same sort of effort that he once directed against Jesus and his church He now lives for them. Why? Because this is the call on Paul's life, the call on believer's life, and he wants to expend his life for that calling. There are two opposite errors that followers of Jesus can make as we think about the Christian life. One of those errors is to make some progress in maturity and to think at some point that we've reached the goal. 
Maybe it's Bible knowledge or church affiliation or victory over certain sins or some demonstration of the Spirit's fruit in our lives. And an individual concludes, I've reached the goal. I've arrived. The other error is to encounter an obstacle, to encounter difficulty in the Christian life and to quit or to resign yourself that the status quo is all there is going to be. Becoming like Jesus is just too hard. It's just not worth the effort. This seeking and striving that transformation requires is too much. Those people forget that in in terms of salvation, while God's grace is most certainly opposed to earning, it's not opposed to effort. Walter Hansen says Paul's dramatic imagery of his race cuts both ways. The perfectionists who claim to have already arrived at the goal and the libertines who have dropped out of the race, they're both called to get back on track and to press on. Now, let's be clear about something. The, the power for living the Christian life is supplied completely by the grace of God. Salvation, coming to faith in Christ, and sanctification, the process of being made holy, looking like Jesus Christ, are all fueled by divine power. Paul's wording makes that clear. Verse 12, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And the order's important. We see the initiative of of divine grace, even the initiative of divine election as the foundation for Paul's life, for his pursuit of this goal of Christ-likeness. Christ's work is first and primary in our lives. But Paul's response and our response follows what God has done. Christ captures us And then we follow him. I've already seen this earlier in the letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verse 12, maybe a page over in your Bibles. Paul writes, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure or to fulfill his good purpose, some translations. We actively respond in our salvation given by God because God is the prime mover in that salvation and the prime mover in accomplishing his purposes in our lives. Paul says, Christ has made me his own, and now I'm seeking to make him my own. It's vivid imagery. It's the idea that we're running in our own direction, which was actually Paul's story, away from Christ. But Christ hunts us down. Christ pursues us. He's like a conservation officer chasing a wounded, dying animal who's trapped and running away. The fleeing person is caught, apprehended, adopted, and then led off in a new direction with new purpose, and new life. This is what happened to Paul. Christ apprehended Paul. And now Paul is running hard after Christ. His heart is opened wide because what Christ has already done in his life has changed him. 
This example of Paul in Philippians chapter 3 is one marked by maturity. Paul knows he's not yet arrived at Christ-likeness. He doesn't yet fully know Christ, and that is his passion. And those who are truly mature, like Paul, realize that they're not fully mature. But he's full of wholehearted commitment, and he's straining toward the goal. He's already found in Christ. He already has Christ's righteousness, but he needs to. He wants to know Christ more. Is that you? There's a paradox here. There's a tension here. There's a reality of the Christian life. DeYoung again says it well. In Christ, every believer has a once-for-all positional holiness. This happens the moment you're saved. And from this new identity, every Christian is commanded to grow in the ongoing for your whole life process of holiness. Sanctified is what we are and what we must become. Exactly. This process, the the Christian life, is well served by the metaphor of a race. Now, to be honest, as you know, I know many runners including my wife and triathletes like Pastor Gary. I respect all runners. I envy none of them. I've never run a marathon. I don't know if I've ever run a running race. I run in certain phases of discipline because I know it's good for me, not because I enjoy it. I've learned even to prefer the treadmill over the open road or an open path. I have learned a few things from those who are actually runners. And one of them is this. You have to focus your mind on the goal. Running requires mental discipline. It requires focus. It requires determination. Paul knows this, as did the Philippians. And that's why he writes about the Christian life with this metaphor of a race. End of verse 13, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm no longer imprisoned to, addicted to the past. That's not my focus. It was at one time. It is not now. He writes in chapter 3, verse 7, that all the trophies of the past are no longer a distraction to him. Forgetting doesn't mean a passive loss of memory. Paul remembers his past. Forgetting is rather an active, continuous discipline of the heart and mind. He didn't actually forget his past. He just emphatically chose to disregard it. There are a lot of reasons why someone might choose not to press on, not to strain ahead. It might be because of resignation, the sense of being overwhelmed in life. Maybe that's you. The Christian life just seems too hard. It may be for others complacency or distraction. You might remember the parable that Jesus told, often called the parable of the sowers, or the sower, maybe better entitled the parable of the soils. He speaks of people who have received the word of God with joy and began to follow Jesus with enthusiasm. But, as Matthew 13, 21 says, since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The pressures of the culture, the pressures of our temptation cause us to lay aside or even extinguish 
the enthusiasm, the determination to press on in following Jesus Christ. There are others who embrace the message of Jesus, as he tells in that parable, but are like seed falling among the thorns. Someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. That this, honestly, might be more convicting, might be more relevant to many of us. We say, Jesus is great. I'm all about Jesus. But upon further observation, we're more focused on living our best life now. We're, We're more focused on protecting the material comfort that we crave. And so our lives become unfruitful. Our our, our pace slows. We get distracted. We might even abandon course and step out of the race. Paul here in Philippians chapter 3 is our pattern. He's also our rebuke. Instead of saying, I ran the race and I reached the goal. Instead of saying, I ran the race and I'm burned out and now I just give up. Paul says, I'm running the race toward the goal. And his call is not total perfection in this life. Paul's a realist. His call is to perseverance. Paul's focus is on the runner who runs so as to win. Dr. Harmon, who was here recently, says, Paul envisions not perfection in the Christian life, but progress toward the prize. Great question to ask. Am I making progress toward the prize? Paul writes something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 and following. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Here's what Paul is saying. Write it down. Run in a prize-worthy way. Run in a prize-worthy way. The security that we have from God in the righteousness of Christ should never lead us to laziness in how we run. In fact, it should motivate our running. You might sit there and say, so what is the prize that Paul keeps talking about? Well, he refers to it in another one of his writings. This one to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes, again, very personally, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. As the finish line gets nearer, the pace picks up. Paul spoken in chapter 3 about what Christ has done for him in the past. Paul speaks about the future and this call heavenward for the prize. And because of what has happened, Paul looks forward to what will happen. 
Or as Pastor Zach said this week, salvation does not equal glorification, but it does guarantee it. Paul's focus, rather, is on what's happening right now. On the call of a Christian to strive after, to know, to grow up in Jesus Christ. To take on the character of Jesus, to know him so well that his life lives out through ours. And that for Paul is no mere duty. It is the absolute delight of his life, following hard after Jesus. Paul rests in the gospel as he strives for the prize. This is the perspective that Paul commends to us in verse 15. He knows that it will be a struggle for some to accept, to see the Christian life as both a satisfied rest and a pursuit after Christ at the same time. All done in the Spirit's power. It's like learning to walk on a balance beam. It takes some time. It's like learning to drive between the lines. Maybe for you it still is a challenge, but for everyone, it takes time. Paul wants us to imitate his pattern as he rests and strives. More than anything, verse 16, he tells us, he implores us to live up to what we've already attained. He uses language here about a platoon of soldiers that, that learn to move together in harmony. One of the dangers, Dr. Harmon says, is that in the West, we're tempted to isolate ourselves from a community of faith. To, to think that we can be more mature without the local church than with it. But that's not the message of the New Testament. God intends for us to grow together in maturity as we spur one another on rather than seek to pursue Christ single-handedly. Sanctification is a team sport. To succeed, we need each other. Do you believe that? The British sailor-turned-pastor John Newton sounds downright Pauline when he wrote many years ago, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul finishes the chapter with a few verses to tell us how believers ought to think. Second point, believers think otherworldly, recognizing earthly disqualifiers and ultimate victory. Paul tells the Philippian believers to follow his example. First, he tells them to follow my example. They had first seen it when he was with them and heard of it later when he was afar. But Paul doesn't just speak of himself. He speaks of us as a model, verse 17. Maybe he's thinking of Timothy and Epaphroditus and the ways in which they lived, and he commended those to the Philippians. In fact, Paul says that includes all those who live as we do. Paul was certain that there were believers in Philippi that those other believers should look to and to watch and to imitate as their models, to thank them, to follow them. You and I in 2021, Northern Columbus have some models too. I think of so many godly men and women in this church family, some of whom have very recently graduated to glory. Men and women who have left us a pattern 
of godly living. The Bible says there are many such patterns. The Bible says that there are those who cheer us on as we run, as they have run. Hebrews 12:1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, perfecter of faith. It's not just those who have gone before us who are now in glory. It's also people who are around us, some older, some middle-aged, some even younger. Some who serve in our midst as pastors or elders or teachers. The Bible tells us to consider their way of life, to follow in their footsteps. Many others who serve alongside of you in various ministries in and from our church. People that Paul would say, watch them and imitate their faith in their life. People who live well in society, in their neighborhood, in their workplace. People who live well for Jesus and speak boldly for Jesus. Paul says, watch them, follow them, imitate them. Paul might even say if he was here for us today, and is there anybody who should be watching you? That they should follow you, imitate you as you follow Christ. Do you have children, grandchildren, neighbors, others in this church that you would want to imitate your life? Pray to God, Paul would say, that your life would be worthy of that imitation. The reason why good examples are so vital is because bad examples are so plentiful. That's Paul's point in verses 18 and 19. He says, many, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. We're not exactly sure who he has in mind, but it's quite possible that these are professing believers who at one time were part of the gathered church in Philippi. And Paul weeps over them with tears, he says. Not the kind of tears as he watches unbelievers live as unbelievers, but as he watches professing believers live as enemies of the cross. They've abandoned Christ by embracing a lifestyle that's totally opposite of the cross. His words are piercing. Verse 19, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Paul speaks of how they live and where they're headed and why this is the case. Their God is their stomach is a way of saying that they worship their appetites. These people are so given over to fulfilling the desires of their body that those desires have become a God to them. We kind of live in a world like that, don't we? We live for leisure. We're obsessed with food. We worship sex. We hoard possessions. Everything we see, we want. The concerns and the passions of this world numb our souls so that we don't and can't live well. Our appetites rule. And, Paul says, these people brag about these excesses. They glory in what should be their shame. Their addictions, their perversions that dishonor God are the ones that they celebrate. Everything is permissible for me. I am free. Paul's heartbroken over that path. And he's concerned that their path will actually be tempting to these Philippian believers. The tragedy is not only that 
that those people have abandoned the way of Christ. It's that some of Christ's followers are tempted to join in with them. Believing that if they follow that path, they'll find joy too. After all, we're not immune to the temptations of this world and the passing delights that others find in them. Is that you? Is that us? Might Paul be warning you and me that a life ruled by our own appetites is not the way of Christ? See, it's possible to think that you are in with God while at the same time living a life that shows that you are outside and unattached. Why would people live that way? Well, because their mind is on earthly things, Paul says. They make the here and now ultimate. They shout, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, except that they forget that after they die, there's a whole eternity awaiting them. And that eternal life matters. Paul reminds the Philippian believers, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds strikingly similar to something Paul wrote to the Colossians, the next letter over in your Bible, chapter 3, verse 1. Since then, Paul writes, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, it's clear to Paul, where we regard our identity, there determines our priorities. What Paul writes here in chapter 3, verse 20, is especially significant in Philippi. You might remember from many weeks ago that Philippi was a Roman colony and its citizens were treated as if they lived in Rome or on the Italian peninsula. You might also remember that Philippi was full of veterans of the Roman army. But Paul here is challenging those citizens and those veterans to remember their ultimate identity. Not to a temporary country, not to a passing leader, rather to a permanent people and an eternal Lord. And those two, temporary, earthly, and eternal, heavenly, should never be confused or conflated. With this background, it's understandable that when these Philippians heard about a savior, it would remind them of the propaganda that they got from Caesar. Caesar who called himself the savior and Lord of the Roman Empire, the world at that time. It's no wonder that when Paul told them about the Lord Jesus Christ, that there would be conflict in their hearts because they realized this was a different message than they had heard elsewhere. But it was a message they needed to hear. It's a message we need to hear. No leader can fix our deepest needs. No program can change our deepest problems. No party can safeguard our deepest values. No country should steal our deepest loyalties. Walter Hansen writes, the enemies of the cross followed the natural inclination of residents in Philippi to look to the emperor in Rome to exert his sovereign power to solve their problems. 
to satisfy their appetites, to rescue them from trouble, to protect them from danger. Do we ever do that? But the Christian who followed the example of Paul looked to Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior. Their hope for the future is not fixed on Caesar or prime minister or president or leader. The Savior, the Lord of the Roman Empire, rather on Jesus Christ, the heavenly Lord and Savior. Because they and we await a permanent Savior who embodies the grace of God and offers salvation to all people. We wait for the blessed hope, Titus 2.13, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? And in due time, every knee will bow, Paul wrote, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Our allegiance should go nowhere else. The story of Germany, my country of residence for a decade, is the story of misplaced loyalties again and again. Of course, the most tragic, the most devastating was the life and leadership of Adolf Hitler. He came and he promised to fix their problems. He promised to restore their status. He promised to expand their prosperity. He fashioned himself as the savior of their lives. And they called him Führer, leader, guide. They made him savior and Lord. And they and the world paid a heavy price. Millions of lives as a result. See, it matters who we follow. It matters who we trust. It matters who we champion. And let no one ever say, including in our time and place, that such deceit, such tragedy couldn't happen again. No, the true Savior and living Lord, who by the power that enables him, verse 21, to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That one is none other than Jesus Christ. He is our blessed hope. He is our transformer. He is the one who changes us. We may groan in the present time, but we know that one day he will return and not only make the cosmos right, but he will make our very bodies right again. You and I ought to look forward to that if we know Jesus Christ. Therefore, those of us who belong to him in the meantime, we press on with our eye on the prize. To follow Jesus means to see clearly and to live intentionally. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, who is worth all the passion, all the striving, and all the resting in our lives. Thank you for the hope that we have in him, that that which we are is not that which we will be, but we have a glorious future in front of us. Help us to live in the here and now with our eyes fixed on him, and help us together to walk in a way that is worthy of Jesus Christ, not as this world walks, but as those who know the Savior and the Lord. Do that in us, O oh God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.